this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today could not be more monocle if he tried. (laughs) He is a Belgian-American pilot. He's an author. He's a frequent contributor to outlets such as the New York Times, Slate and the FT. After starting his doctoral studies in East African history, he dropped out to pursue a career in aviation, which in the decades since has taken him all over the world. His third book, Imagine a City, a pilot's love letter to the world's greatest cities, chronicles his journey from dreaming of glittering metropolises as a small child in Massachusetts to travelling the world as a pilot. Mark von Honecker. Welcome to Meet the Writers. Oh, thank you, Georgina. It's a pleasure to be here. Honestly, you, as I say, you could not be more monocle. You're a pilot. You love Japan. You speak Japanese. You love cities. You love urbanism. It's almost as if you were created by monocle. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a devoted reader, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm very glad to have monocle with me uh, in, in cities around the world. It's a it's a wonderful magazine and website. And of course, for people who travel to cities, it's really the perfect guide to the world. Absolutely. Right. I want to start at the beginning of your life because it's such a fascinating life. Firstly, your father. I mean, he was a priest, a Belgian priest. He was in the Congo. He went off to Brazil and then left the priesthood. Tell me more about him. Yeah, he he did have an extraordinary life. He grew up in a small town in West Flanders during uh, World War II. They had a German soldier stationed in their house as planes were crisscrossing the skies above his home. So he he had a, a lifelong interest in military aviation, whereas my focus has always been civil aviation. And then he yeah he he went he trained to become a priest in Bruges, and then was sent to Africa, and then later to Brazil, where he lived for ten or eleven years and became fluent in Portuguese and lived in a series of cities there. He was a polyglot. He spoke 11 languages. He loved, he had so many interests. He Once uh, he and my mother planned a trip to, to Turkey, and he spent a year secretly learning Turkish in the car on the way to work with a set of audio tapes. <laughs> and they arrived in Istanbul, and to the astonishment of all who knew him, he just started speaking Turkish. Oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah, what a was, great surprise. Yeah, and he was, yeah, he was a wonderful man. And whenever I go back to my hometown, Pittsfield... I often meet people who remember my parents and in particular remember my dad and his kindness. Yeah. And your mother too, a devout Christian. She worked in a, a lay missionary group in Paris for, for some years and then uh, left. My father actually became an atheist. He left the church and, and all sort of organized religious belief. And I always joked his new his new god became Carl Sagan because he had a strong <laughs> interest in astronomy and science. And my mother retained a, a sort of spiritual interest throughout her life, although it, was, it wasn't always an organized religion. Now, you mentioned Pittsfield, and of course, this book circles the globe, but the centre of it is Pittsfield, which is where you come from. Tell us about the city. So Pittsfield is in a region called the Berkshires of, of Western Massachusetts, which is uh, well-known to generations of, of New Yorkers and Bostonians who would go up there for, for summers to, uh, to see the countryside. And, and it's probably best known for a music festival called Tanglewood, which is one of the top music festivals in the U.S. But in the center of this quite rural region is one small city, Pittsfield. And it's it's kind of, you know, it's kind of in every city. It's, in some ways, it's iconic. The very first reference, uh, written reference to baseball in the country is a bylaw in Pittsfield about not breaking the windows of the town hall. <laughs> the very first intercollegiate baseball game was held there. The very first agricultural fair, you know, you, you, know, you see... Um, 
throughout the U.S., agricultural fairs are, are still a big a big deal. And the first one was held in Pittsfield. And of course, it's where Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick. Yes, that's right. Um, it is where Herman Melville lived in the uh, mid-19th century after his uh, his travels all around the world, obviously. And he sat in a small farmhouse looking out at snowy fields and at Mount Greylock, the tallest mountain in Massachusetts, which is said to resemble a whale and indeed a white whale in the winter. In fact, I've got an event at his farmhouse next month I mean, what a, for a, a son of Pittsfield to come back and to speak to an audience in Melville's house. I don't know what else a writer could wish for. Yeah, absolutely. And now this book is extraordinary because it's not just about being a pilot, although that's a lot of it. You take us into the cockpit with you, but you explain the cities that you find. You tell us about them. You tell us how you experience them in different ways. But you also talk about your childhood You talk about growing up as a gay child, as a child with a speech impediment, and how you would imagine a city to take you away from all of those troubles. Tell us more. Yeah, so growing up in Pittsfield, I was obviously in love with aviation. It it was my first plans or the first thing I can remember really catching my imagination. And I was very drawn to maps as well and to, you know, I had one of those illuminated globes in my room that I would spin and and I would read off the names of cities on it. And that was sort of the pull, I suppose, was flying and the the chance to to see those places which were just names to me on the globe. I never thought I'd see them all. I suppose the push would be, you know, as you say, growing up as a gay kid in a small place and dreaming of finding a place where you can be yourself and come into yourself. And the speech impediment was kind of an interesting aspect as well. I I had really, real trouble saying that hard American R, uh, which meant that I even had trouble, people had trouble understanding my name when I said it. Mark was something that people couldn't understand. So people would guess Mike or Mac or, or something. And that's the kind of thing that it sounds small, but when you're a child, it really looms. Like I remember no kid looks forward to the start of the school year, but I remember being terrified about, you know, the first day when you would meet your new teachers, they would ask you your name. And and so those in the speech impediment is kind of interesting because you know I mentioned my father and his his talent for languages and at one point he said to me different languages have different R's in fact that hard American R is actually quite unique it's one of the ways you can tell someone's not a native speaker you're listening for the R for the th which is another unique sound when I learned that I thought oh well I'll just I'll just go to I'll learn one of those languages <laughs> and I'll just go to that to that country to some city and. I'll be able to speak freely and also maybe I'll be able to be open about being gay there. And and so I had this not very articulate but quite powerful sense that I had to leave to become myself. And, you know, that's not a new story. It's one of the oldest stories, isn't it? But it's one that, you know, those were the dimensions of it for me. And it's something that, you know, writing in this book, I wanted to talk about what cities have meant to me, what actual cities have meant to me, the cities that I've seen and what it's like to see them from the air and then to walk within them. I also wanted to talk about what city, what the idea of cities has meant to me and what the idea of home has come to mean to me as I've gotten older. Mm. So obviously aviation is, is a huge part of your life from very early on, and yet that's not what you chose to study. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. You know, aviation, it kind of, it's one of those things that often runs in families. Very often I'll fly with someone who's, whose parent was a pilot or grandparent, but, you know, my father had that interest in aviation because growing up in the war and of traveling so much as a young man himself. But I didn't know any pilots. And, you know, Pittsfield, despite how I joke, is not a major international hub for aviation, uh, not yet. And so I came to it quite late because I didn't I didn't really know how you go about becoming a pilot. And so I, I went to university and then I started a PhD. And then eventually I decided I'd like to become a pilot. And I got an office job. I became a management consultant just because I knew that was a chance to fly a lot. 
and then to save some money. And that was, funnily enough, the the company I chose to work for had an office in Boston right on the waterfront. And if you know Boston, that that meant I had a great view of the airport across the harbor. <laughs> so I would, be, I would be sitting there supposedly working on my presentations for my next meeting. But in fact, I was mostly looking at the planes taking off and wondering if I someday uh, would do that. And of course, I did become a pilot. And some years later, I did go back to Boston in, a, in the cockpit of a 747, which was one of those nice ways a circle can close. I can't imagine Absolutely. a nicer Were way. you looking at your old <laughs> office as you came well, in? I was looking at the runway, but let's say I was thinking about the <laughs> office. <laughs> so, all right, let's talk about being a pilot. So you chose to train with BA. Why was that? Well, I had come to the UK for grad school. So I'd had a whole set of friends here. Many of my closest friends were people that I'd met in that grad school program. We all shared a house together and they were kind of um, become almost like an urban family to me. And, of course, you know, BA is just one of those iconic airlines. If I think about I had so many model airplanes growing up in my, in my bedroom, and a lot of them were Pan Am, and most of the others were BA. And, you know, I was in love with the 747, of course. And at the time, BA had not just the, the Concorde, but also the largest fleet of 747s in the world. There were 57 of them. And, you know, the idea of flying those all around the world was... I mean, there's nothing else an aspiring pilot could have wished for. And I did that eventually. I, mm. I did become a 747 pilot and and flew um, all of those planes multiple times to to the whole world. Really. You talk about the training period. You, you do it here. And then you get shipped off to clear skies. Oh, to Arizona. Yeah, yeah. So the initial bit of training was in Kidlington, uh, north of Oxford. With uh, a horrible instructor. <laughs> I had we did a pretty grumpy instructor, and uh, that, the flight school there was it was quite old school, uh, but very rigorous. And and then we went to uh, Arizona for the first part of the, of the actual flying training, and you know Arizona is a is a spectacular place to learn to fly. It's a United Nations of of pilots from all around the world who come there because you know it's big and open and has good weather. And then you know the first stage of flying is to learn to fly visually, where you you fly with reference to the outside world. You're looking out the window. So Arizona is perfect for that. The next phase is instrument flying, where the whole point is to not look out the window and to rely on navigation systems, which are you know are part of the aircraft equipment. And then, of course, the the weather in the UK, especially in the winter, is perfect for that as well. So <laughs> we we came so we came back to the cloudy uh, skies of Oxford to complete our training. Mm. And then eventually, I actually joined BA. I wasn't part of BA yet, and uh, and my first flight was twenty years ago in February. And what do you fly now? What what type of aircraft? Uh, I fly the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, which is one of these new ultra-efficient twin-engine planes that have the range to fly um, to fly anywhere anywhere in the world, really. Mm. And so is it right that you, you always have to fly within one sort of family of aircraft? That's right, yeah. So it's I've tried to, you know, in, in Skyfaring, my first book, and in Imagine a City, I, I, I've tried to come up with an analogy for that. I don't really... Sometimes I think it's it's not quite like having a specialty in medicine, but it's something it's something like that. So you have a general you have a general transport pilot's license, and then you get an, a sort of add-on, which is a specific license for one aircraft type or one family of aircraft. Mm. So that I can only fly Boeing seven eight sevens now, and when I flew the seven forty seven, I could only fly that. And then in between them was a two month or so course conversion course. It's called to transition from one aircraft to another. And what's special about the Dreamliner? Well, uh, quite a few things. From our perspective, in the flight deck, it's very quiet. It's much quieter than the 747. You can actually hear other planes from inside the cockpit sometimes, even in flight. That's how quiet it is. You know, they're safely separated by by at least 1,000 feet and often more, but sometimes you can still hear them, which is which is really striking. That definitely wasn't the case in the 747. 
And the, the cabin air quality is enhanced. So there's the equivalent altitude inside the plane is is much lower. So and it's more humid as well. It's more it's a more natural air environment, you'd say. So you feel better when you get off the plane. That's something that that's one of the reasons I chose to fly it actually, and it's one of the reasons passengers like it. And then it has much bigger windows actually. Because the airframe is not made of metal, it's made of composite materials, so you can make the windows a lot larger. So if you're a window seat fan, you'll uh, you'll enjoy the views. Are you a window or aisle person? Absolutely window. If you oh, see aisle, your arm gets knocked every time the trolley goes past. Exactly. Um, what is, though, what is the best seat, then, in a Dreamliner? My, uh, apart, my, from my the, seat. apart from the cockpit. <laughs> Row zero, as we call it. Yeah. Oh, gosh, what's the best seat? That's a, I mean, I'm a big fan of the window seat. I mean, if you're not going to say 1A, which is obviously... Yeah, exactly. I actually don't mind. I take a lot of photos when I'm flying as a passenger, and I actually like sitting just behind the wing because I think the photos come out better if there's a little bit of the airplane in it. Mm -hmm. So if you're taking photos, it's nice to... You know, if you if you look at like Instagram or, or Twitter where people post photos in the window seat, so often they have a bit of the plane in them, and I think that's quite interesting. It's People don't just want the view. They want the experience captured in the photo, and that requires a bit of the of the airplane. And then if you fly to Heathrow, which I do all the time, of course, you really want to be on the right side because the views of central London are better from the right side. And, you know, I've, I fly into London, you know, multiple times a week. You probably fly in here pretty regularly as well. But, you know, sometimes I try to remember that on each flight I do from, you know, if I'm coming from the U.S. or, or from India or Japan, you know, on every flight I do, somebody on that plane is probably coming to London for the first time. Probably many people, right? And you think of the view they're having, you know, all the things that might be on your bucket list for the, your first visit to London. And you see it all. I mean, you see the Tower of London and you see Tower Bridge and you you see the Tate Modern and you see St. Paul's and Westminster and, and St. James's Park. And, you know, the whole line, you know, line of parks. You see the palace. You see the river, which connects them all. You fly west along the river. So I'm a big fan of the right-hand seat if you're flying into London. Mm. I mean, and you must now have formed such a wonderful view of the world, of the topography of the world, of the cities that you fly in, you describe the lights and the, and the darkness over the farmlands. And I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful piece of descriptive writing. And I wonder how you got into that. Your first book, as you, you mentioned, was Skyfaring. That was back in 2015. When did the, the writing part of this come to you? Writing had always been a sort of strong interest of mine. When I was a kid, I had, I always had a diary. And I also had a lot of pen pals when I was growing up, which were another, you know, we talked about uh, representations of elsewhere, you know, when you're a shy gay kid with a speech impediment, you know, what it means to think of other places. And, and pen pals were a big part of that for me, too. And so those those letters were often involved describing place, particularly the place I came from, and hearing the descriptions of place from other people. Mm. You know, and then I would occasionally write the small things for myself, but I didn't I didn't really write anything for publication until maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And I just... You know, I started writing a little bit about flying, but mostly I was writing about other things, so sort of general travel stuff or cultural pieces. And an agent actually saw an article I'd written in the New York Times about globes. It was actually about my illuminated globe that I had as a child. And she wrote to me and said, would you like to write a book about globes? And I said, well, I think I've written enough about globes, but what about flying? And she said, oh, you're a pilot. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, let's, let's look into that. And the result was skyfaring. And I really do enjoy... You know, I'm often asked about the difference between writing and flying and how different the jobs are. And, you know, it's so it's so great to have those two different tracks in, in one's life. You know, the, the flying track is so everything we do is written down. Most of what we say is prescribed and advanced, you know, advanced. And 
a journey is so is so linear. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you know you know your destination and stuff. And none of those things are true of writing. You know, you never mm. you never know when you're finished. You don't really know where you're going when you start out. You don't have a lot of guidance. There are rules, but you're as a writer, you're kind of meant to break them, which is definitely not true of being a pilot. <laughs> um, so the contrast is really lovely, I think, and I, I like I like both. Tell me about your second book, How to Land a Plane. Ah, uh, that was a short almost a stocking stuffer book. Um, and the the spoiler alert, you cannot learn how to land a plane by reading a book. <laughs> but I, I did want to talk about what we go through as we make an approach to a city and, and land and, and what are the kind of things that you would think about in your first lessons. And it was also quite lighthearted and it was kind of fun to try to write something fun or funny, um, which isn't something I'd done before. Mm. And to switch tone like that, from from skyfaring and uh, imagine city to switch to like something something different was a real challenge and to write something short it's obviously i don't know who said it but it's much harder to write something short than mm. something long <laughs> so. Uh, so this beautiful book which has just come out each chapter is about a different city although almost all of them circle back to pittsfield at some point but they all have they have different names but each name is is about some sort of the way you identify the city so city of memory or city of beginning city of dreams and so on tell us about that well that structure any listener by now could probably guess that I'm a fan of Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino, which is, you know, a wonderful meditative book on cities and and quite kaleidoscopic in the sense that, you know, you don't really in theory all this he's describing many, many different cities and they might they might all be Venice, they might not be, in the sense that, you know, we're all and you know, it gives you this impression that we each come to a city as ourselves and a city is unique to each of us and yet the city is formed by those various impressions. Mm. So I very much like that structure. But in terms of titling these chapters, I was actually thinking more of my dad, who who wrote a, the story of his life, an, a, an autobiography for his family and friends. And he lived in a whole range of cities all around the world. And, and he titled his chapters with, the, you know, these kind of epithets for cities. So, you know, the city of 365 churches, or the city of the city of bicycles, or and so I was evoking both that family history as well as uh, Invisible Cities by Calvino, which is a favorite book, and mm-hmm. it's also a good way I think of organizing. You know, when you see so many cities as a pilot, you start to really think about what they have in common and and what's different about them, and and so it was a way of incorporating both that similarity and, and then within the text, the differences. Mm. Often a pilot has to just kind of fly in and then he flies out and it's a night in an airport hotel or whatever. But you make a real effort to get to know cities. You walk around them. I think at one point you say you save up little errands that you would normally do at home to do them in a foreign city. Yeah. T- tell us about how you experience a new city. Well, one of the great things about being a, a pilot who's, who's a traveller as well, is that, you know, when we, when we go to a city, we don't have, really, we don't really have anything to do there. Our work has been to go there. So unlike a business traveler who has meetings and, you know, client dinners, or a tourist who's trying to tick off all those sites during a, a trip that might be just one of a lifetime, you know, the only one of their lifetime, we're really free to just sort of relax in a city and, and to get to know it in a much more casual way, a much more relaxed way, I guess. And that can mean you occasionally, you know, when you're in Beijing, every fifth time, maybe you do go to the wall, to the Great Wall. But the rest of the time, you just kind of wander and you think, oh, oh this cafe looks good. I'll, I'll walk there and then I'll go to this museum, which is I've never heard of before. And and you can even do errands. Like I was just I just had to get some trousers mended and I was in Hong Kong. And as any listener there will know, it's a city of tailors. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people go there to get suits made and it's a 
you have anything you need tailored and you have a trip to Hong Kong coming up. And so I, I just went to a tailor there and had, you know, I dropped them off and had a nice chat with the tailor and picked them up the next day. And I could have done that in London, but it was a nice little adventure, I guess, a nice insight into the non-touristy side of the city. Not long ago, a couple of years ago, I guess I had to get a watch strap replaced, and so I did it in Sao Paulo. And, you know, it's not, Brazil isn't the easiest place to get by if you don't speak Portuguese. It's not a place where English is going to get you all that far. And so you have that aspect of adventure as well. So it's, yeah, it's a nice, it's not the kind of thing you would normally do as a tourist, is it? Because mm. you'd want to make the most of, you'd want to see this museum or that church. And do you take after your father in terms of languages? tiny bit but nothing like nothing like him you know he was he was absolutely extraordinary what do you speak and how do you learn languages do you use an app well my my biggest push uh, on languages recently it was actually a big resolution last year to, to get back to japanese which i had learned a little bit of in high school in a summer that i spent there and then i learned a little bit at university and then when i went there for work as a consultant and so i've really really tried to make a big push to learn japanese and so i've had I have a tutor online, which is one of the great things about learning now, you know, as opposed to 20 years ago, is that you can have a tutor. You can have great tutors all over, all over the world. So my tutor is a, a Japanese woman who lives in Toronto, and I just book the time in online, and, and we have these great chats, and she gives me homework. And then I have an app. Pimsleur is the, um, I don't know, Pimsleur is kind of one of those old school language learning names like Berlitz, but their apps are really good. And, you know, a lot of the apps that are free out there they're not really specific to the language, so they'll show you a photo of an apple, and they're using that same photo for Spanish, for Japanese, whatever. And that's fine for learning nouns, but when you want to learn like grammatical structures, especially in a language like Japanese, which is so difficult for English speakers, you really need a program which is focused on that language. And so Pimsleur is great. Tell us more about your affinity with Japan, because I guess Tokyo is possibly your favorite city? I think so. You know, Tokyo is... In many ways, it's the the ultimate city. It's it's the largest city that's ever existed. It's 37 million people or so, which is basically the population of California or Canada in one city, which is just an extraordinary statistic. And, you know, it's a very easy place to explore um, in the sense that it's very safe and people are very kind and very helpful. And the transport network is, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever looked at the transport map of Tokyo, but it's it's... I mean, it is on another order <laughs> compared to to any city uh, in in Western Europe or the U.S. There's a line, a circle line there that runs around the center of Tokyo, which I write about called the Yamanote Line. And I, at least when I wrote the book, it may have changed now with the pandemic, but more people ride that circle line every day than the entire London underground system. <laughs> and the trains come like every every minute. The joke is that they just need one continuous train, <laughs> you know, just one train that goes around the whole city. And of course, the food, you know, I mean, there must be thousands of neighborhoods and a million restaurants in Tokyo. You, you could just, it's the easiest and also an endless place to explore. So I highly recommend it. It's not it's not a novel recommendation, I suppose. But, you know, for someone who's never been to Japan and who has an interest in cities, it's uh, there's nowhere else like it. Mm. The city of dreams. We're talking about Los Angeles. Yeah. So Los Angeles was is a city that, you know, growing up on the East Coast of the U.S., my parents, I guess, had a kind of bias against California. I think they thought it was, maybe they thought that, like, uh, cold weather is good for the spirit or, or, or something and, and life was too easy in California or something. I don't know what the standard biases would be. So I didn't go to California for, I went there quite late. I was in my 20s by the time I went there. And when I first went to Los Angeles, I was 
just amazed by it. I mean, the scale of the city, it's not as, in population, it's not up there in the top 10 in the world, but the geographic scale of it and its geographic location, you know, at the end of the continent and the idea that American culture kind of rolled west across the country until it pooled in this basin on the coast and formed the city, which is, of course, you know, so unique in its structure. It doesn't really, it was liberated for better and worse from European notions of a city, which kind of populated the East Coast. And, you know, you have the ocean there and you have these snow-capped peaks running around running around it. And, and to fly there from London, you know, it's 11 hours and most of that is over Canada or over the ocean. And then you, you fly over the, the Great Plains and maybe they're, you know, locked in snow in the winter. And then you cross the deserts and the Rocky Mountains. And then you think, well, how much more continent can there be? And, and you fly over the last ridge and there's this pool of light there. And, and landing in Los Angeles, the, the air at night is so clear, it's so dry. And... You know, Eleanor Roosevelt, I think I quoted her in, in Imagine a City, you know, she flew there in the 40s and remarked on the jewels of the lights below. And, you know, that was, what would she make of it now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you it's so beautifully written, I'm, I must say. Yeah. But you go into signs a lot. And in that chapter on L.A., you do talk about signs that are sometimes only lit by a passing car. And you ask this question, which has just stuck with me. It's what happens to unread words? I love the idea of signs. And, you know, I think I came to it, and that's actually directly a parallel with Calvino, who City of Cities and Signs is one of the motifs in Invisible Cities, although it's not really about road signs in the same way. But the idea of, of cities sort of standing at the center of a series of, of signs which kind of ripple out across the land around them, and that those signs are often unread and you know, they're in the chapter on Los Angeles. I, I leave the city and I'm in the, a valley north of it. And, you know, I come to a road sign in the middle of, of a deserted valley at dawn. And, you know, the sign is pointing to Los Angeles, to this to this distant, distant metropolis. And signs are just this, they're metaphorically very rich, right? I mean, they're, they're nothing in themselves, right? They only stand for something else. Mm. They literally stand all across the land and point to a place. And, you know, we think of cities as you know, the way they draw people to them and, and resources as well and, and young people in the way that, you know, I left Pittsfield for larger cities, that Los Angeles is every every city, as long as cities have existed, have drawn people in from their provinces for better or worse. And I went to some trouble actually a couple of years ago to find the farthest sign from Pittsfield <laughs> that pointed to Pittsfield. It was about 45 miles away. And that's another way of thinking about, about a city's gravity is how far the signs are from it. Mark, this has been so fascinating. I could talk to you for absolute hours about this. What I would say is people should definitely read this book. It's just, I mean, all of the cities that you go to, we're in India, we're in Africa, we're all over the world. And it's just beautifully, beautifully brought together. You give us the histories of the cities. You reference literature throughout the, the whole thing. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful read. And I highly recommend it. Mark, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Georgina. It's been a pleasure. And I hope to uh, see you on board. Imagine a City is by Mark Van Honecker. It's published by Vintage and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Tanzan Howard, Sam Impey and Helmi Pillai. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listening.